I wanted to end this week with um, so kind of a, on an upbeat. <laughs> Not that it hasn't been up and wonderful, <laughs> but uh, just to make sure that we bring a lot of balance into our practice, looking at uh, some of the uh, the good stuff, the victories, the wins, and uh, it, it came out of a time when I was teaching uh, at the Forest Refuge. I got inspired to look into something and. Uh, you may, if you've, if you've sat there, or maybe you've done it in other settings, one of the chants that's often done at the end of the day, it's done at the end of the day every day at the monasteries, but at the end of retreats or the end of periods of practice is the sharing of blessings chant. And um, it includes a lot of things. It's, you know, it has to do with the sharing of merit, uh, recognizing that what we're doing is very, very skillful, and one doesn't want to be piggy about enjoying the merit of that all for ourselves, but you share it with uh, all the various beings uh, in the universe, and there's a whole litany of um, offerings in that regard. But there's one line in there that really um, jumps out at one, if you hadn't heard it before, and it it says, uh, it goes like this, you know, may you soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. And so one time somebody uh, came to an interview and asked me, well, that sounds good. <laughs> What's that all about? What's that threefold bliss stuff, you know? <laughs> sounds, it sounds really interesting. So it started me uh, looking into it, and Andy and I talked about it a lot, and, you know, because we weren't even sure uh, what these various uh, uh, levels are. But, um, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really rich uh, study, a really rich study of practice. And I saw it immediately as a kind of a balancing agent because um, so much of uh, Theravada Buddhism uh, in particular uh, just focuses on uh, the things that are difficult, focuses a lot on dukkha, certainly focuses on anicca and anatta as well. But, um, you know, and there's no end to the list of the, the things that we need to overcome, <laughs> you know, the, the three unwholesome roots, the five hindrances, you know, the, the 18 unskillful intentions, the, the 10 fetters that gradually get uprooted over the course of uh, practice. And um, I remember Bhikkhu Bodhi was talking about this one time, and he said a student of his uh, came to him after a talk and, and said, I have to tell you, I was a lot happier when I only had one original sin. <laughs> and it's like that, isn't it? <laughs> because it can feel really, really, really heavy. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's good to talk about these things because um, we want to be able to shine the light on it and we want to be able to look at the, the difficult places with some semblance of objectivity. You know, to do, It's not about seeing the negative or seeing what's wrong. It's about developing a way of looking and an impartiality towards what we see. But, you know, too much of it can really throw you off balance. And, um, you know, it it occurred to me that you might even be uh, guilty uh, in a way of um, uh, just developing the the bad habit of only looking at that, Uh, only seeing the difficult places, uh, looking at what needs work, and not noticing... Uh, the fruits of practice, not noticing the good things that are already in the heart, the things that have actually brought us, the part, the, the mundane right view that we talked about, uh, but also the, the things that are, that are developing as we, as we go along in practice. And this is, uh, this is really um, important, because I think as, maybe particularly as Westerners, we already come 
to um, life and to practice with a hefty tendency to look at what's wrong. <laughs> you know, and there's, there's a, a, a way that Buddhism can um, accent that for a while until we develop the understanding to, to see what he's actually saying with all this. So, you know, when we um, emphasize too much this, then you can miss the goodness in your heart. And, uh, you know, I was talking about this with one of the monks, and he said it could, it, it could actually be the case that um, because of that overemphasis on the difficult, that um, you, you're, you're like selectively attending to that and actually develop that kind of habit so that literally when the uh, fruits of practice are appearing and uh, um, uh, manifesting in our lives, in our experience, we're not seeing them, you know, because uh, of that uh, habit of the mind. So, it, you know, it, it can be actually quite dangerous uh, to only look at it this way. So, mindfulness calls for us to see it all, <laughs> not to selectively attend in this way. So, you know, what I came to looking into this threefold bliss is that this is actually a really good model to use to help us to um, uh, up the ante <laughs> on noticing um, the, the skillful places uh, and the happy places. And, and the long and short of it is that the, the, the threefold bliss is um, uh, worldly uh, or um, human happiness, uh, heavenly happiness, or what's often called the celestial happiness, and uh, the happiness of Nibbana. You know, and, and uh, so I just thought I'd look into this a, a little bit and plant some uh, ideas in your mind so uh, you develop the habit of looking at all of this. So when we look at the worldly uh, or, or human happiness, um, there's a lot in the Buddhist teachings about this. And I think uh, this surprises a lot of people because uh, the Buddha uh, talks extensively about worldly happiness and the value of it and the... Uh, importance of it. And you may recall back in the section on Sila, we did the Mangala Sutta, where uh, there's, there's this whole litany, verse after verse, of things that are, um, in, in one manner of speaking, uh, the happiness uh, of, of the human realm. And they have to do with uh, uh, having a skill and a trade, you know, acknowledging your strengths, knowing what you're good at and developing that and being able to make a living out of that, you know? Uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but I didn't think about it that way before uh, contemplating the Mangala Sutta, for example. Or, um, you know, he talks about being able to care for the people that we love, whether as a parent or uh, maybe as an employer, um, certainly as a partner, uh, being able to care for relatives and kin, especially in times of need, having the wherewithal emotionally, but also the uh, financial capacities to do that. You know, there's a very worldly um, analysis here. Uh, and being able to, this one I love, being able to make offerings. You know, uh, I've watched this over the years in my own heart, in my own practice, the, you know, the, the sort of the uh, mandatory making dana, you know, uh, how it feels initially. And then as you fall in love with dhamma, you know, and see how important it is in our lives, then uh, the idea of um, being able to support places like the study center or monasteries or teachers, it, uh, you know, if you pay attention to what's going on in your heart when you do that, 
this is really good stuff. I'm getting goosebumps right now, you know. Um, I know just that, that experience of putting food in the bowls of the monastics, you know. Uh, I cannot do that without whimpering. You know, there's a great joy that just bubbles up in, in the heart to be able to, to make those kinds of offerings and to have, uh, literally, to have the resources uh, to be able to do that, to um, look at what we value in life and letting that be uh, what it is that we um, are, are earning money for, you know, to support that. And in other suttas, um, he talks about the, the happiness, you may recall the happiness of being free of debt, this kind of thing, um, you know, having good health, the happiness of, I remember in the um, Sigalaka Sutta where, the, where Andy did that mandala of all the different directions and the places where you uh, lend support, um, being able to uh, take care of employers and neighbors and, and family members in that way. So there's lots of examples of literally um, worldly or uh, human happiness. It has to do with just living in this realm and um, having the wherewithal and the resources to do what we value. So that, that's one level. It's very um, um, earthy, very grounded. Uh, and, but this also includes, each of these also includes a certain um, aspect of um, uh, sila and uh, also living uh, first of all just living with um, recognizing being aware of uh, the good fortune that we find ourselves in uh, first of all having been born as a human being I mean it's said and you can take this or not you know um, that this rebirth is a very very fortunate rebirth uh, because it, uh, you, I'm sure you've heard this, you know, it carries with it the, just the, the right mix of pleasure and pain to make it possible to wake up. <laughs> you know, it's not so much pain that you're uh, preoccupied with it all of the time, and it's not so much pleasure that you're preoccupied with that all the time. It's this nice mix, uh, which um, is, a, is a great uh, basis for uh, attending, uh, for mindfulness. And, and the Buddha talks about this in one of the uh, suttas on um, uh, karma. He, he talks about um, us, uh, all of human beings as being the owners of our karma, heir to our karma, like the verse we have in, in our chant. Uh, and then someone asks him to explain, what do you mean with in all that? Owners of your karma, heir to your karma, born of your karma, by supported by your karma. And he explains it. He explained it in a number of ways, but one of them has to do with um, the fact of this human birth being uh, so uh, fortunate uh, and uh, the fact that, um, it, uh, that that wholesome karma conduces to this uh, fortunate rebirth. And more than that, that it's a fortunate rebirth with fortunate circumstances. So that... Um, and he, he, you know, you can, and as I said, you can take this or leave it, but I think it's a very interesting thing to contemplate that um, one is born um, relatively uh, comfortable, you know, uh, healthy, um, even uh, with uh, good conditions in one's life, and but more importantly and primarily that there is um, we're enjoying the fruits of past karma that draws us to the Dhamma. He's like, why are we? Why are we not skiing? Or, 
at the beach, you know, we're here. What, what is that? Do you know what I mean? Do we notice this? Is it, are we taking that in? That, um, like Andy, when he held up the chart, you know, would you rather the chart or the chocolate, you know? Well, most of us know what that means, to prefer the chart, you know, to prefer the Dhamma. Uh, it, it's it's very very strong in all of our hearts and and so in a way I think he's encouraging us to to notice the the blessings of our lives uh, as they manifest as fruits of of past karma and uh, but you don't have to believe in rebirth to go there you know uh, I, I just look at um, those moments in my life where maybe there's something I've been working on. Uh, a tendency towards unskillful speech, for example. And um, I'm in the situation where all the conditions are ripe for me to go into unskillful speech. (laughs) And I don't do it. (laughs) You know, at that moment, I don't know about you, but those moments happen, and they're happening more and more frequently, and they are glorious, you know. It's like, oh my God, I didn't do it. <laughs> this is so good. This, this stuff is working, you know. And that is actually being the heir to your own karma. You know, you're, you're enjoying the fruits of past karma. And I think what he's pointing to here is make sure that you notice it. Like, take it in. And... Um, Granted, I'm a, I'm a, tend to be a greedy type, but uh, I I like to soak in those moments. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of had this expression I coined years ago. Just to wiggle down into them. You know, <laughs> they're great. <laughs> it just feels so good. And so, worldly uh, uh, happiness, in, in this sense, at, at another level, also has to do with the um, keeping of the five precepts and uh, enjoying the happiness that goes along with doing that. You know, just just uh, uh, noticing uh, those moments. Like I was noticing this week when that day that was so hot, and there were so many bugs. And I was sitting outside talking to somebody, and the bugs are all, you know, the longer you sit there, uh, it turns out they're kind of drawn to the heat. So as you get hotter, they get, they get more, they, they, they uh, swarm more around you. And, you know, I could feel myself going like this and, and wanting them to be gone, yes, definitely, but also wanting not to hurt them, you know, to try to find a way to swish them without hurting them. And one time I didn't, I felt, you know, this great sadness, but what are you going to do, you know? I didn't know it was a bug crawling on me that I reached to scratch. But just to feel that, um, to notice that, that increasing harmlessness. I mean, that was definitely not the case years ago. You know, we, our house was full of fly swatters and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bug spray and all of that stuff years ago. So something is different. And, um, are we noticing that and and soaking in it, feeling good about it? And, and the, there's something in us that uh, truly would rather live skillfully. And uh, it can get missed. It can easily be missed. 
And I, I use it, I'd like to just draw a couple of examples of people that I've talked to about their practice. And this one fella um, came to the forest refuge and was um, practicing there for, or planning to practice there for a couple of months, but in very short order, he didn't want to stay. And then he reported to me that um, he couldn't stand being with himself because um, he was just filled with uh, lust and wanting for some of the attractive women who were practicing there. Uh, and, uh, you know, being a healthy heterosexual man, that, that's where his mind went. And, um, he, you know, he was burdened by this, greatly burdened by this, and uh, uh, filled with remorse, right? And not noticing that, you know, that, like that was the reason to leave because he couldn't stop feeling lust, um, and and uh, couldn't get his heart to that place where he could just see women he found attractive and see them with respect and not as objects for his gratification, you know. And uh, he was very uh, saddened by it, and and I and I was just sitting there smiling and uh, happy for him, uh, you know, which is kind of the flip flop that Dhamma teachers often do, you know. But um, what I was seeing was a, a person who had a highly developed uh, sense of um, remorse, which is very very important in practice, very important as a Buddhist practitioner, you you want remorse, <laughs> and you want a high degree of it because it's the bit that if you can go into it and feel it, and not um, get lost in it, not wallow in it to where it becomes this great guilt or regret, um, it, it's a great teacher. You know, it's the bit that's going to keep you from going down that track again. You know, so in in, in Buddhism, this is it's called hiri. Uh, and Otapa together, but you know they're they're called the guard, the protectors of the universe, you know. And so here's this guy; he's got this. He's got this in bounds, you know, and he's not seeing it. Uh, and and then add to that, you know, I, I said, you know, you're not you you're, you so do not want to treat people with disrespect. You know, you're not you're you're only seeing the fact that you are. You're not seeing the fact that you so don't want to do that, <laughs> you know. And really, to to go there and uh, take that in, uh, something's got to bring some balance and some lightness into the heart, and you, you know, to feel good about yourself. These are very very wholesome, skillful qualities that are also arising, or that are the basis for the great pain that you're in. Around um, uh, this this uh, mind state, and so he stayed, and you know, and he worked with it. It was and it was really good, and he, uh, we can miss that, can't we? You know, and something something very similar with a gal who was uh, doing just just uh, kept getting caught and snipping at her partner. You know, it's just why can't I stop snipping? I'm just always so irritated and annoyed every little thing she does. You know, I get annoyed by her. And, uh, uh, you know, I said, that it's the same kind of thing, to feed back that you so don't want to do that. Give that some air time. <laughs> Give that some equal time in, in terms of penetrating your heart, letting your heart soak there. Because that's as much a player 
and moving you in that direction as a, the, the remorse for being that way. So what happens at this level is we begin to see the difference between uh, being uh, driven by compulsive motives uh, and doing things with some semblance of awareness. This is what's going on at the human level. And, uh, and seeing the difference between uh, being driven by selfish motives and being driven by motives that have to do with the welfare of other people. You know, you, don't you see that? We're constantly sort of noticing those two. And this is, this is really uh, an important part of, of practice life at this level. So um, the net effect of all of this, of working with the precepts, which is just what that is, is that uh, we're, uh, we begin to enjoy a great happiness. You know, sila is a, is a great um, a conducer to happiness. So too, at this level, we really begin to um, enjoy the, um, the happiness that comes with samadhi. And you know, maybe on any given day you may not feel that <laughs> particularly, you know. But a lot of the um, quietude in the mind, the stillness in the mind that develops um, at this realm, in this realm, is really, some of it's around uh, keeping the precepts. Because certainly, um, how many hours have you spent on the cushion uh, reverberating over transgressions of the precepts? You know? And that, that, over time, that does its magic on us. You know, it starts to wear down the impulses because you, you start to you feel the, uh, being sick at heart uh, at those transgressions. And, and so, um, little by little, the, the, uh, you get more calm, you know, because um, the, the behaviors are being transformed and uh, the regrets that one has to sit with uh, are being diminished over time. Just less, a lot less anxiety about being unskillful because it's not happening so much. Or it's happening at least a little less. And, and some of the development of samadhi has to do with the, the meditation training itself. You know, look and see. I, I, I guarantee you, you're getting lost less. You know, and uh, if you're getting lost, you're seeing it sooner. And it may be microscopically so, <laughs> but uh, you know, just these minuscule increments of uh, in that regard. But uh, it, it does get better. And and when we find ourselves caught up, where um, we don't turn it back on ourselves as much. So this is all part of what goes on in this realm of, um, of human happiness. These are, these are the delights that we enjoy um, as human beings. So, you know, with samadhi too and with the meditation training, there's just this great um, happiness that uh, comes in, in just remembering to try to behave well and remembering to, to come back uh, maybe uh, early on in practice we uh, get upset with ourselves for wandering but um, you know, notice, look and see it, it, is it becoming the case that when you wander off and you come back there's a little bit more gladness there uh, as the years go by glad to come back you know, and, and not so much uh, annoyed that one has gone off 
So these are, these are very happy states. And it, it's part of what we want to be on the lookout for. So it, uh, the, the second happiness, the second level of happiness, is what the, the Buddha called um, celestial happiness, or heavenly happiness. And this is, um, you know, these take a little bit of unpacking. Some of it seems, may seem very strange at first, but, you know, the Buddha, in, in his teachings on, on heaven, he, he definitely promised that one of the rewards for living well, for living by the precepts and um, performing good deeds, is to um, uh, be reborn in heavenly realms. You know, even though it was rare, uh, it does happen. And in, in Buddhist cosmology, these heavenly uh, realms are um, occupied by devas. <laughs> and, you know, we can take this or not, you know, we can believe in this or not, but you, have, you, you can't read the suttas and uh, n- not come up against it. It's all throughout the suttas, where many times you, you hear about the, the Buddha going off to the deva realms and teaching them, or the devas coming down. The Mangala Sutta starts out with the deva coming down to ask the Buddha for a teaching. You know, it's it's like it's all it's all through the the suttas. So I mean, you know, you can take it or leave it, but there there it is. And he's talking about realms um, beyond the human realm. And there's a very interesting uh, fictional account of these realms uh, with which you may or may not be familiar, but it's a a book that uh, Ajahn Amaro edited, um, and it's called The Pilgrim Kamanita. Uh, He said he found it, he found this old manuscript among Ajahn Sumedho's books uh, at Amaravati uh, one time, and it it was uh, in the um, uh, Danish language, and he... uh, uh, translated it and uh, published it for free distribution. There's a copy of it, in the, a couple of copies in the library. But one of the things about it, you're reading along, and it's a, it's a, it's a novel, but it brings in all the characters from the time of the Buddha. It's about this pilgrim Kamanita who goes and wants to find the Buddha, right? And all the, everybody's in there, not the Pindaka, Angulimala, you know, Sariputta, they're all in there, and you can read these fictional accounts of his encounters with these. But, I mean, I'll give you a spoiler alert here if you don't want to hear this, shut your ears, but <laughs> about, about a third of the way into it, uh, he dies. And it's like, what a, wait a minute, it's all about this guy's journey meeting the Buddha, and about a third of the way in it, he dies. And the whole rest of the book is his, the, his account of his life in the Deva realms, in the heavenly realms. So it gives you, I mean, it's, it's fictional, but it's taken from the um, suttas of what, the, what goes on there and what it's like. Pleasure realms. So, I mean, if you're curious about it, uh, you know, that's, that's where one source that one could go to, to to see what he's talking about here. But anyway, he, the Buddha does talk in a number of suttas in very glowing terms about the bliss of these uh, realms. And there's, I won't bore you with all of them, but there's, there's, there's one that reminded me of the Handful of Leaves Sutta, where um, he's trying to teach people about the celestial realms, and he's, he goes through this litany of the pleasures that a, a, a monarch might experience. He calls it a universal monarch might experience. The, the, 
wonderful experiences that somebody who has a lot of power and a lot of money might have, you know. And he talks about having lots of elephants and having great employee, employees and having a great spouse and being really beautiful and um, having all kinds of powers. And he says, what do you think? you think he's going to be happy? And everybody's sure, you know, he's going to be happy. And he, and he does one of these things where he picks up a small stone and he says, what do you think is bigger, the stone or the Himalayas, you know? And he goes, well, no, the Himalayas are, are much bigger. And, and, and that's what he uses that as the image to say, well, this, this is the pleasures of the universal monarch. And basically saying, these are the pleasures of the best of the human realm, right? The size of this stone. The pleasures of the celestial realms, <laughs> the Himalayas, you know? And so that kind of being uh, somebody who likes pleasure, you know, that kind of piques your, your attention a little bit, uh, where they say a day is like a hundred thousand years. And uh, it's a, a pleasure all the time, much of, most of the time. But even these, of course, obviously, he says that uh, they, these realms uh, in, in Buddhist cosmology, and there are many of them above the human realm, um, uh, the beings who live there are still in samsara. So they're still subject to sickness, aging, and death, and they still uh, haven't realized nibbana. So, you know, there's even a, one of the scenes in the Pilgrim Kamanita is when his many, many hundreds of thousand years are over, and he's whooshed back into uh, birth in, a, in another realm. So anyway, I mean, as I said, take it or leave it. This is part of Buddhist cosmology. But I find it really interesting on a couple of levels that are maybe perhaps a little more practical. You know, one thing is that one is just a, a saying that these realms exist and to stay, you know, he's saying unequivocally that they do. And uh, it helps me at least to, to keep open to it, uh, open to that uh, as a possibility. Uh, but... Also, he's saying that um, it, it, it's kind of an interesting twist because I thought I left this behind in the Catholic Church. You know, He's basically saying that it is a worthwhile ambition to live a good life in order to uh, realize these realms. And a lot of people, a lot of Buddhist practitioners uh, hold it that way. You know, Bonnie can affirm some of this for, for us, but uh, I know a lot of the Thai people they're very, very happy to um, devote their lives to living well, to doing their level best to keep the precepts and um, support uh, Buddhist institutions. And uh, uh, they're, not, they're not particularly focused on Nibbana. <laughs> they're not focused on uh, the meditation. They're not particularly focused on high levels of renunciation. They're very happy uh, with worldly pleasures. And... Uh, I have to say, they're some of the happiest people I've ever met in my life, you know. Uh, so th there's something, uh, too, holding it in this way. It's not to diminish one's capacity for uh, liberation in this lifetime, which seems to be so appealing to us as Westerners. But it, it's maybe to acknowledge that that's possible, but uh, in a way to just relax a lot more around it. The, the Thais don't seem to have a lot of anxiety about liberation, <laughs> They're just very happy to be good people. And there's something very attractive in that.
So the celestial happiness also includes very high levels of sila, and um, as we mature, we develop sila to much more mature levels. And this isn't this doesn't have to do with keeping more precepts, although it can. You know, the, uh, as we develop in practice, we tend to look more towards to the eight or the ten precepts, or living in um, uh, experiences like monasteries where there's higher renunciation for periods of time, just to, to learn, to do, uh, learn from what those kinds of structures help us uh, experience. But it really has more to do with the depth with which one is keeping the precepts. And what I mean by this is that over the years of practice, one, as one begins to see firsthand the consequences of harm, the consequences of doing harm, then um, our reasons for um, turning more wholeheartedly to the precepts are, are getting more and more wise. <laughs> They're getting more and more, uh, being more and more born out of direct knowledge and direct experience. There's not like a should about it. There's not a, a, an effort to comply with some rule or some standard. It's, it's really... Um, much more driven by um, we, we want it because uh, of the happiness it brings to us, us and the happiness that it brings to others. And one sees this very directly. I mean, don't you find this to be true? You're growing in your own heart. So that our, our reasons for a sila are getting uh, much more profound. Much more. There's much more understanding um, driving driving it all, and our happiness grows and grows. Like that uh, experience uh, of uh, seeing wrong speech about to happen <laughs> and not going there. <sighs> the, the great relief, or noticing the the quality of dana mature, and the great happiness that one feels in all of that. So, and, and as we grow wiser in this respect, it, it's less and less the case that uh, we have to refrain from doing harm. And this is fascinating to notice. And, and I, I mention it because I want to shine the spotlight on it. Where, where it, it's, it's sort of, you start to get this feeling, don't you? Like there's even a, a force field around the impulses. <laughs> to do harm. And even though they might bubble up, they might not be uprooted yet. The, um, the, the, it, it, there's sort of like a, something that prevents follow-through. This is, this, get, this is very beautiful when you see this happening. And it can even get quite unconscious. You know, one of the monks was telling a story about one time when he was staying at a place that he didn't know, he wasn't familiar with the room or the uh, layout of the facilities that he was staying in. He had to get up in the middle of the night to pee. And uh, so he, he couldn't find the light switch. And uh, so he just kind of groped around in the dark and found his way to the bathroom and, and then uh, went to wash his hands. And he said as he, as he reached for the spigot, he, he had this, it's almost like a uh, saw a pushback, you know, some some force let, not letting him turn the water on, and uh, so he said that's weird. And 
he groped around a little more and did find the light switch and and turns out the whole sink was filled with uh, uh, bugs that had uh, nested there in the night and if he had turned the water on he would have washed them all down the drain you know if he had turned it on without seeing them so he had this sort of an intuitive sense that uh, of the potential of harm without even being able to see it without even being able to know that that's what, that's what it was and I love that story it's kind of magical but still uh, I, I, it's quite possible so you, you know uh, what happens over the, the months and years of practice is um, one just grows in this great joy of not being driven to do harm and the great joy of seeing the maturing of the um, impulses that offset that. Uh, this, is, this is what he's referring to as, as heavenly happiness, celestial happiness. And we can't forget, forget the uh, celestial abodes, the, the Brahma Viharas. This falls he- right in here in the, uh, under this heading that um, over the, the years of practice, uh, these skillful states of, of kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity, they really uh, start to replace um, their opposites <laughs> and quite naturally and, and quite or organically. So we, we replace the uh, worldly happiness for the, uh, with the unworldly happiness. And one bears witness to that. Yeah, one uh, one gal was telling me how she um, one of the, one of the uh, fruits that she's seeing is that um, she w- there's there's just these little things that we do uh, with our partners and with family members where there's there's things that we don't like about what the way that they are. And it's fascinating to look at some of this stuff because it's not that we're necessarily being unskillful. It's just these uh, silly little habits that each of us has that uh, in, in terms of ethics or morality, they're pretty benign, you know. And you could probably name some, um, you know, in, in family members or partners that you can think of. But still, it, it's, it's weird, but then we annoy each other with some of these things because people don't do it the way we do it. You know, they do it some way differently than, than the way that we do it. They think differently than the way that we think. And, and so she was becoming uh, aware of these um, through practice and uh, w- wanting to stop it. You know, just wanting to find a way to um, make peace with those uh, little personality traits, you know, and and seeing over the years of practice um, how she was beginning to be able to do that. Uh, And a lot of it was coming from acknowledging, beginning to, you know, you begin to notice through practice the impact you're having on other people, you know. And, and, uh, you know, the habits that you have that annoy other people and uh, trying to clean those up. And so simultaneously, uh, one, you know, as you become more tolerant to our own shortcomings and see how little they change, um, becoming more tolerant of those, uh, of other people, particularly uh, the people who are dear to us. So that relationships get a lot more harmonious. 
So all of this gives rise to a certain settling in our lives, and um, even even in daily life, one begins to enjoy a lot more internal stillness. So the samadhi factor, through the the years of practice, starts to get a lot more heavenly. <laughs> you know, where it's a lot more accessible, a lot more sustainable, and um, because there's more quiet in the mind, you, you actually can have periods where the mind actually feels good. <laughs> you know, it's not, there's, a, there's a, a lightness and a spaciousness there. And you can see why it's called heavenly happiness. You know, this is uh, one of the manifestations of it. So, uh, our, as practice goes on, our, our happiness is less and less centered around worldly objects and more and more centered around these uh, unworldly states and unworldly uh, impulses. So that, you know, the, the growing happiness in our hearts is being born out of renunciation, out of kindness, out of harmlessness. And it, it said that a person who enjoys, who is living in this uh, state of celestial happiness, in living in the Brahma Viharas, uh, has a pleasing fragrance about them, <laughs> literally, and uh, that uh, there's a when they enter the room, people can feel it. it. There's a you know whether it's a literal fragrance or not. There's a there's a contagious quality around that um, settled uh, heart. And so uh, Nibbāna is the, the highest happiness, the happiness uh, of um, Nibbāna. And here, you know, as we were talking today, this is the place where the self-absorbed tendencies in the heart um, are um, gradually and eventually completely uprooted. You know, when we talk about the various stages of awakening, even at the lower stages, even through the second and third stages, they're still, uh, or up to, through the second, but not... Uh, completely eradicated until the third, there's still a certain greed and, and hatred, subtle though those impulses might be. There's um, some self-absorbed tendencies uh, still active in the heart, but even these eventually um, get uprooted. And that the possibilities of that, you know, the, the, what that might mean for us uh, in terms of the way we live our lives just would, you know, just boggles the mind. Uh, and so the classical definition of someone who uh, has realized that the final stage is, uh, of, of an arhat is someone who literally cannot do harm. So sila is completely perfected. You know, the, the, you know, we talked about this early in the week about right view and right intention. When those are optimized, when those are the maturest that they become, then uh, the mind... Uh, the impulses to go in the direction of doing harm have completely dried up. And I don't know about you, but that just sounds so unbelievably attractive to me. You know, you, th- you think about the suffering that we experience just from having those impulses, let alone following them, and the, the uh, harm that's done through our actions. To, to not only have uh, the not only be able to intercept those, but to not even have the impulses there. That's a very attractive, very attractive state. 
So it said that the, in the unawakened state, we think that uh, our happiness is kind of like a, a, a commodity. It's something that you work hard to get, you know, and then when you get it, you do your best to hold on to it, you know. It's, it's kind of framed in that way. Uh, but through the awakening process, what we begin to see is that um, uh, happiness, uh, even if you want to call it that, that word almost falls short of the experience, but it, it, it's, um, it's more the case that it's what's left over when all the impulses that to the contrary are dried up, when everything that takes us away uh, uh, into unskillful um, states, uh, when those impulses are left. So, you know, one of the monks uh, refers to um, uh, this state as, a, as the kind of the happiness that uh, we fall back on when those impulses have dried up. And Ajahn Chah defined Nibbana as uh, the reality of non-grasping, just realizing, making real the, the reality of non-grasping. So I don't know, th- that these kinds of definitions just really put it in perspective for me, because I don't know about you, but when I started practice, you know, I just had a lot of wild ideas about Nibbana. <laughs> you know, and I, I thought I was going to do a three-month retreat, and, you know, boom, get out of here, and you know, uh, wear white and walk a few inches above the ground for the rest of my life somehow, you know, and these crazy images and like, and just those, that sense of doing something so something was going to happen that I kept looking and trying to look in the right way so that whatever it is that was going to happen, that whatever zinger was going to come in or lightning bolt I was going to get so that, that that would happen. And, and then I'd be in this idealized state, you know. And you probably have some images of your own. You know, most of us, if we're honest, probably admit that uh, the idea of enlightenment or liberation or awakening carries with it a, a lot of crazy images. Well, you know, what if it's not like that? <laughs> what if it's something a lot more practical and uh, simple uh, simply the, the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion in the heart, would that be good enough? You know? <laughs> it's going no. <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, that, that helps me to bring it down to something that actually seems more possible seems more doable, seems more realizable. And I think it's an important issue for us to contemplate as, as Western practitioners in, in particular, that because um, a lot of a lot of people I talk to anyway have seem to think that it's um, un, unrealizable, uh, un, unattainable, um, that it's so high and, and remote that it's not particularly worthy to, to even retry, try, but it, it, it can seem really uh, far out of reach. So it's good just to contemplate how we understand it. I mean, uh, maybe that's true. Maybe it is far out of reach and not attainable. But uh, I don't know. And I I just want to raise it as a question. How do we conceive it? And I think for each of us, this has to get sorted out. And so the the reason why we wanted to include talking about Nibbana is, is not... Uh, not only because it's part of the Buddhist teachings, 
but to help us as a, a individuals, you know, to uh, contemplate this and uh, raise these questions for ourselves. So we'll do some more of that in the morning. But I, I like what Ajahn Sumedho says about Nibbana. Um, he, say, uh, he says, um, in English, Nibbana has the, the connotation of nothingness. Nothingness uh, can seem like an annihilation, you know, nihilism or uh, something on that order, and, and may not seem very attractive. But um, he says you can also uh, emphasize the thingness. And so he likes to put it this way. He said, so it, it becomes uh, more no-thingness. And uh, Nibbana is not a thing that, that you, you find. It, it's a, it's a, uh, an experience of no-thingness, uh, a place of non-possession, a place of non-attachment. You know, and I, I like that. I kind of so, uh, sit with that a little bit, contemplate that. And so just to close with this one uh, verse, um, part of a sutta from the Sutta Nipata, this is from the chapter on the way to the beyond, and it ties in with that book we gave you, The Island. It's the basis for the title of that book. Uh, and this is someone speaking to the, to the Buddha. And he says, Sir, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being, and death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me, where to find an island. Tell me where there is a solid ground beyond the reach of all of this pain. And Kappa, says the Master, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of being, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of nothingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana, the extinguished, the cool. There are people who, in mindfulness, have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara or for death. They cannot fall into his power. So may it be so for us all, yeah? <laughs> So I'll offer you this for your reflection tonight.